Hello everyone. Thank you for checking out Mental Health Podcast, a show dedicated to encouraging more open conversations surrounding not only men's mental health, but everyone's mental health, because it's something we all have in common. Before we head into the main episode, I wanted to remind you if you are struggling to cope right now, you are not alone ever. There are links to support services in the episode description. Remember, conversations save lives. For this week's episode, I had the pleasure to sit down with Jack Green. Shortly after the 2012 Olympics, at the height of his career, Jack became severely depressed and suicidal, struggling to come to terms with the pressures of the superhero persona attached to elite sportsmen, in addition to being a role model. He shares his experience of therapy and how giving yourself a voice and the permission to feel and accept that being vulnerable is part of being human an open, powerful and organic conversation. I hope you enjoy this episode of Men Tell Health. Okay, Jack Green, the wonderful Jack Green, welcome to Men Tell Health podcast. How are you doing? I'm very well. I'll take the wonderful Jack Green every day if that was a if that was an option that someone could do that. Yeah, I'd employ someone to call me wonderful Jack Green every day. Perhaps perhaps there's some merchandise there as well that we we can uh, we've just sparked <laughs> t-shirt. I don't think it's going to be very successful, but yeah, if you wanna, if you want to start doing them, I'll at least have one. <laughs> well, thank you for being here and I'm really excited to talk to you today about your experience and your journey with mental health. So I suppose to get us started, can you tell us a bit about you and your background and what you're up to uh, today? Yeah, so obviously I'm Jack Green. I'm a double Olympic athlete and that's probably what I'm known for best. So I represented Great Britain at the last two Olympic Games in the 400 meter hurdles and the 4 by 400 meter relay. The horrible ones, the ones that no one wants to do, probably why I was successful because hardly anyone's doing (laughs) doing them, not wanting to be in pain. But I was very lucky. I I spent 10 years at the top of of my career and and being top 20 in the world, top 10 in the world, winning world and European medals and, and so on. So I was very lucky because that's what I dreamt of as a kid and I got to live out that dream but during that time I, I struggled with my mental health of which I was very public with that I went public when I was first um, diagnosed with depression bipolar tendencies and anxiety um, and I've been a mental health advocate kind of ambassador ever since for various charities and, and keynote speaking working with the government on on some work to do with sport and mental health and that led to me then going into the well-being space so I retired at the age of 28 which is young in, in track and field because that's kind of at your peak. But I retired and was given the opportunity to be the head of well-being at BBC Studios. So I led on well-being there for 30 offices globally, five, 10,000 people. Um, and it was just absolutely, yeah, overwhelming at times because I started just before lockdown. So as you can imagine, that job became very big um, in terms of supporting our people. I then left that because I don't enjoy full-time work. Uh, I like a bit of autonomy and I coach professionally and I needed to be able to to work with my athletes um, in the day um, during work hours essentially. So I started OlliWell which is a wellbeing consultancy uh, and very passionate about the the wellbeing and performance links rather than wellbeing just being soft and fluffy. But yeah so so now I I work in the wellbeing space my own consultancy and coach in the afternoons which 
I'm very, very lucky. I, I get to do lots of meaningful work, which, you know, it's, it's probably the most important thing for a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it sounds like your experience with your mental health was really a catalyst for your kind of next career, I suppose, and where you are now. And, and that's kind of led you to that place. So um, I'd like to, you've touched on what you've experienced there with depression and, and bipolar tendencies, but I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about your experience of poor mental health and particularly how that felt and your lived experience of, of those um, challenges. Yeah, so my, I definitely struggled with mental health when I was young. I just didn't know about it. So my kind of first you know, experience where I, I became aware of mental health issues was shortly after the 2012 Olympics. I'd, I'd become suicidal. I'd struggled for a very long time, six, six to nine months, where I wouldn't acknowledge mental health. I didn't believe it was a thing, being male, being a sports person, being successful. I'd just come forth at the Olympics at the age of 20. Like, why should I have a mental health issue? Um, so I was trying to change loads of things in my life. And, and I ended up just breaking down because I didn't want to do what my dream was anymore. I'd lost love for everything. I, I, I couldn't find any joy. I had this expectation that my life should be fantastic and it didn't feel that way and that was quite hard to take. Um, going to the Olympics was my, my dream. I, I, I believed it was gonna be unicorns, fluffy rabbits, rainbows when I walked <laughs> out on that track. And I got there and it was just another track. And actually, that was so hard to deal with because my whole life had been about that moment. It was almost, I thought I was going to complete the game. Like, yeah. yep, game over, well done, life's complete, off you go. But it was just another track and I really struggled with that. So, um, you know, I'd lost love, I'd lost joy. A lot of people talk about it in this way and that I didn't see colour anymore. Everything was, right. was just grey, was just black, white, grey. There was just no colour, there was no joy. And yeah, it was just the fact that I, I was felt worthless. I felt nothing. At times I felt nothing. And this is a really strange thing about, about depression, particularly that that's quite hard for people to understand unless they've experienced it. But I'm sure those who have experienced it will, will know what I mean in terms of at times you feel nothing, absolutely nothing. And then at times you feel everything. Yeah. And it's the strangest thing. Um, because you feel everything so strongly, yet you also feel nothing. Um, and yeah, I just got to a point where I, I didn't want to live anymore, to the point it was hiding sharp, sharp objects in the house because I almost couldn't trust myself. And leaving the house meant that, I, you know, I'd look at a car and think, well, maybe I, should, I could go in front of that and life would be better if, if I did that and wasn't here. And yeah, so that was kind of my first experience of mental health issues and I became incredibly anxious about people and things I couldn't control, thinking people were going to hurt me and all these things. It was just a terrible time, which I, you know, I've unfortunately revisited a couple of times in, in my life since. But um, yeah, that was my, my first kind of experience of, of poor mental health. Well, thank you, first of all, for your candour and, and just being so open. And, and, to, and frank about that. And that's exactly what this show's about. And I I wondered if we could unpick a couple of things there that you've said. And the, and the first one really is what you were saying about being a young man, uh, being incredibly successful, living out your dreams and not, you know, not realizing that you could have that mental health challenge because of all those things that have been kind of projected on you from external, you know, entities as it were. So when did you 
begin to realize that that wasn't actually true you know what you'd been programmed to believe kind of wasn't you know accurate uh, after I after I was diagnosed by our, our team doctor at Great Britain Athletics, I then started working six weeks at the Priory with a, a psychiatrist there, um, a man who is was he's just brilliant South African man, um, and he taught me the you know the awareness piece and just listened to me and allowed me to to voice a lot of those struggles and and that's when I realised because he also you know he was he was clever in terms of telling me how he'd worked with. England football and other sports people and so on so he straight away went into and I haven't even thought about that until this moment that he actually went in and knew that that would have been one of my issues uh, I wouldn't be able to accept it so created a space where I wasn't alone it wasn't because I thought I was special anyway right so I thought I was different to everyone else so but I put myself on a par with other sports people because that's that's what I do. So he, he managed to relate it to that. So I imagine that that actually was a huge part of it and going, oh, OK, well, if you work with the best footballers in, in the world and the best cricket players in the world and so on, then then it's OK for me to, to be here as well, um, which is actually really interesting. That I've not thought about that, but I then was quite naive. So I went really public. I did a double page spread in The Times because I'm brutally honest anyway. It's just how I am as a person and, and I wear my heart on my sleeve a lot of the time. Um, we can talk about vulnerability and there's ways I don't, but overall I, I wear my heart on my sleeve and I just like things to be out there because I find it too difficult to hide things or or keep things secret as such. I just would rather things were honest. So I went really big, two page spread in the in the Sunday Times. And, and actually that was the first time that I realized that mental health had a stigma because I hadn't had any experience of it. I had this idea in my head that I wasn't able to struggle with mental health because of what I've achieved, but I also didn't know what it was. I'd never had any experience from friends, family, or anyone in my environments who had spoken about it. You know, I'm sure people did struggle, but no one told me they struggled. I'd never seen it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just thought, well, I'm just telling people that, you know, well, this is what's happening. People are asking what's happening. There you go. And then I kind of saw the stigma of I was then treated as damaged goods after, which was a, a, a really interesting kind of journey um, for a 21 year old at that point to, to be so public and, and then realize that oh no actually there is something that isn't particularly great surrounding this mental health um, but yeah I mean it, it, it it's for a 21 year old to put themselves out there like that I mean the most courageous thing anybody can do is is ask for help and put themselves out there isn't it so it's it's really interesting to as you say to reflect on the attitude towards you after that was negative where it, it in an ideal world and, and, and really why would you why would that be negative why wouldn't you champion that you know this person is who it has this amazing platform is being really honest so um I'd like to think that we have made some progress since then I don't think we're quite where we want to be yet um but yeah thank you and and I'd, yes I, you've read my mind I'd love to to stay with vulnerability a little bit you've mentioned that and um you know you are very honest but what areas do you struggle with vulnerability and why is that i've only been vulnerable since the end of 2019 
So I ended up in probably the worst place I've ever been in, in 2019. I just burnt out the intensity of, of what I was doing for a living and, and so on. Um, I just burnt out and I decided to seek some help for the first time, which was a huge initial piece of vulnerability. I'd never seen help apart from that first six weeks. And, and by this point, I was 28 years old. So I've been struggling publicly with mental health for seven years and I hadn't seen anyone. And at that point, I'd been a world and Olympic medalist. I'd come fourth at the Commonwealth, gone to another Olympics. And I was still really struggling and, and not, not accepting it, even though I was talking to businesses and saying, oh, yeah, businesses, people, charities going, yeah, mental health, this and this and this. But I wasn't doing anything myself. And um, so I got in a really bad place. And, and I just learned about vulnerability through working with that counsellor. And, um, and she just she was amazing. She just she was a guide for me. She I'm very good at coaching myself. I'm a coach now and I'm very good at coaching myself and I can and I work really hard and I'll, I'm really curious and inquisitive. So I just need to be pushed in the right directions and I'll figure it out. And she was great for that. So she taught me all about vulnerability. And, and essentially, I used to wear this armor, right? So I'd have this armor on, I'd have my shield, I'd have my helmet, sword, whatever. I got the full whack on. Um, and I've decided that I'm only allowed to feel a certain way. I'm only allowed to feel certain emotions. I'm only allowed to be portrayed or people can only perceive me in the way that I decide that, that I'm going to be perceived, which is something I really struggled with because I was meant to be a role model. Um, yeah. So I always really struggled with the anxiety of how am I seen and what do my actions and my behaviors then, you know, what are the consequences? Um, so I used to wear this armor and what would happen and, and when I'd really struggle would be because I've said I can't feel weak, I can't feel sad, I can't feel any negative emotion. And as soon as one of those would get through my armor or a load of them have built up that I've not acknowledged, I've not dealt with, then I'd struggle because I'd feel overwhelmed by all these things that I've said I'm not allowed to be. Yeah. And suddenly I'm full of these things that I'm not allowed to be. I'm not allowed to be these things. And, and because there's so many of them or I can feel them so strongly, it goes against everything I've decided I am and I've built up. So I'd really struggle. And a big part of me accepting vulnerability was accepting I was a human being, was accepting that because my whole life I've been told I was special and I'm special in a certain way. I'm special at running around a track, right? Which yeah. actually is just ridiculous anyway, but I'm special at, at running fast, but I'm a human being that runs fast. I'm not just a runner, I'm a human being and, and human beings have bad days and human beings struggle. And as soon as I accepted that, that I was a human being and I will have some days that just aren't very good, it completely transformed me. And it, I, it allowed me to be like, well, human beings do feel these ways. And I'm a human being, so I'm allowed to, because it was a huge piece around permission, really. I hadn't given myself permission to, to be a human being because my nickname was even Green Machine because I was like a robot and I was like a machine. So even that built up this idea of what I was and what I wasn't. Um, so for me, it, it was making that decision. I'm a human being. I will make mistakes. I will feel things and we'll move on with them. I'll deal with them and I'll move on with them. And that was really powerful because as soon as I started being more vulnerable and opening up to those feelings and emotions, it took the power away from them. Because where I expressed them, I either communicated them with, communicated them with people or I, I just put them out in the open, I actually then realized that, oh, it's not that bad, is it really? I'm building this up. I'm actually making stories up about these things I'm feeling or whatever it, the situations I'm in, that when you would then express them, you then go, well, these aren't that powerful. And it allowed me then to move on and move forward with those emotions and, and a lot quicker rather than trying to ignore them. And the sad thing about vulnerability and, and for me was I used to wear this armor to block out the negative stuff. 
but no one is skilled enough to just block out certain emotions and, and let in the others. So actually, I probably didn't feel joy in my life until I was 28, 29. Um, because I just blocked out everything. I remember being proud of, of a really close friend saying, you know, I had like a thousand yard stare. Like you can't, you can't read Jack. You look in his eyes and you have no idea what's going and, and it's just, there's nothing. And I remember being proud and that was one of my closest friends. And how sad is that, that your closest friend has no idea how you're feeling or anything. That's the, that was really sad actually that I was proud of that. But from the world I came from, that was a good thing because it was seen as a weakness. If this, if my competition knows how I feel, can see I'm nervous or I'm upset or I'm worried or whatever, then they've got an advantage against me. So unfortunately I'd take that into my normal life. And yeah, so a huge thing around vulnerability for me essentially saved my life and um, it gave me more opportunities. It allowed me to connect better with people. And frankly, I was just, I'm just better overall because I'm giving all of myself I always gave 100% in effort, but I never gave 100% of myself because I was always protecting a part of me. Whereas now I just put it all out there and what happens, happens, right? That's life. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. now I give 100% effort and of myself, which is um, quite freeing. Absolutely. And there's so much of what you've just said there that is so powerful. And I think so many people are going to really resonate. It's going to resonate with so many people. And, you know, the, that piece around taking control from the feelings back and and, and accepting that you, you are going to feel these things and accepting that it's so powerful and it, it's a lot of resonation with me because what you're saying about your friend and a friend of mine said something similar to me once in, in the sense that I'm able to just put feelings aside and get on with what I need to do and I remember being quite proud of that for the same reasons of I've got I've got it all under control. You know, I'm I need to be present myself this way. And there's an element of perfectionism, isn't there? There, um, but I, I'm wondering. You know, we're talking about this armor you've put on. That's an amazing analogy. And I'm wondering. I'm still not clear on on, on why you felt the need to put it on in the first place. What what was causing you to think I need to protect myself? I need to put this on. I know you've got this public image, but what else was there? Was there anything else? making you feel yeah. I think you nailed it in terms of I'm a huge perfectionist um, everything has to be perfect I'm I work on it now and I'm a lot better but there's still elements of it um, so I'm a perfectionist so I can't get things wrong which leads into a fear of failure right so by wearing this armor it's protecting me from failure and you see academically I am more than capable I'm an intelligent person but if you look at my grades I don't have any and now that didn't that my excuse was always as a young man was my excuse was, oh, I don't need to do this because I'm going to go to the Olympic Games. Now I did, right? The likelihood is people don't. We hear it all the time, you know, we kids. So oh, I'm going, I'm going to do this. And yeah, cool. The percentages aren't in your favour. Yes, I went to Olympic Games, yeah. but that doesn't actually explain why I didn't do my academics. I didn't do my academics because I was very, very good at something. I was world class at one thing. So I decided I'm now world class as a person. And yeah, if yeah. I fail at anything else related or not to my my athletics it will damage my ego and my idea that i am the best in the world because i the best in the world can't be bad at something so instead of even trying and and probably being fine and being successful in you know maths or english or sciences whatever it might be i just thought no i'm just not even gonna go to that point i couldn't drive a car till i was 21 because 
you know, to begin with, it was a financial reason because, you know, I come from a single parent family and, and didn't have money. But then it was just because actually I was scared that at this point I'd been to an Olympic Games. I can forfeit an Olympic Games. And what <laughs> happens if a, if a driving instructor says, no, you failed or, you know, or you're, you're awful at this, then that's just going to be attacking this idea of who I am. Yeah. And it's all just built up by what I decided. It's completely ridiculous. But yeah, a lot of it was because of that perfectionism and that fear of failure. And also, I just didn't, I think I've always struggled with people in terms of, I'm, I like people, I tend to be good with people. People are amazing, but people are also scary because you can't control them. Yeah. And I like to control things. I'm an only child who's been in an individual sport, who's a perfectionist. I like control and I like to be in charge. And the idea that, you know, other people are just going to do things that I can't predict or I can't do anything about or control just always scared me a bit. So I think that added into it, you know, I can't predict what someone's going to do. So it's better that you just stay away from them. And, and you know, previous relationships and, and various things will, will would be able to uh, uh, confirm that one that, you know, I'd, I'd be quite detached. And, and it was just because of a fear that if I commit to this, I might, you know, I might be the loser. And I just never wanted to lose in anything. Um, so I wouldn't put myself in a position where I might lose. Um, yeah, whereas sport, obviously, I was more comfortable in because typically I won stuff or I was one of the best. Losing didn't. And if I did lose, I was losing against the best people in the world. Um, you know, I didn't accept at the time, but you can look at and go, well, it's not really losing when you're still top 10 in the world. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and and again, so so much in there is really profound and, and re will really resonate with so many people. And you've touched on a few things already. You you know you've you've mentioned there you got better with perfectionism, and you you talked about how you coach yourself um, now. But I I wondered if you could go a bit more into detail and in, and in how you look after your mental health. And you know if you're having a particularly challenging day, you know what actions do you take? Um, and and do you have any hints and tips for others who might be struggling? with their own mental health yeah so the when i finish my talks I, I share my journey and then i like to give a few life lessons just a couple of things that i've learned um along the way that have helped me and and it tends to all be around mindset in in my experience um and the things i like to share and i talked about effort earlier and that's something i preach and i've been called mr effort recently because i i preach about it so much and um that is measuring yourself on effort rather than results and it's, it's understanding that, you know, some days you might not be feeling great. You might only have 60% of the tank because of whatever stresses are, are in your life. We've got so many possible stresses in our lives, right? So I might not have 100% to, to give, but I can give 100% of it. And that comes into that show up, turn up, give all of yourself. And then measuring yourself on that. Did I give everything I could today? If the answer is yes, then you actually can't do any more. And it becomes positive, right? You then become consistent because you're consistently giving everything. You're not burning out because you're giving what you can yeah. and you feel good about it because you know you are doing something good. Whereas how I used to be was if it wasn't uh, winning the race, it wasn't running a new personal best and being the best in the world, then it was a failure. And I might have whatever stresses that are going on. I might not be capable of doing that on that day. And then I'd still beat myself up. Even though I gave 100%, I did all I could. I'd beat myself up and be like, that's not good enough. I demand more. I'd even, I, you know, there's only one race I've ever celebrated in my life. And that was when I, my um, Commonwealth Games in 2018, at the end of my career, I came fourth. It's the only race I celebrated. Yeah, before wow. that, 
before that, youngest ever winner at a European under-23s, British champion, you know, number one in Europe at times, and winning medals here and there. I never celebrated because it was never good enough. Even if I won the race, it was, no, that should be faster. Even if I ran fast, it was, no, it should be even faster than that because it's always about the next thing. So for me, it's about measuring effort. That was huge. Um, that was my, my main one. There's loads of other things, but in terms of, of just how I helped myself, I got myself a dog. I used to live in Florida and then I moved back here. So I live in Kent, so I moved back to Kent. And I spent so much time on my own that I knew I needed I needed something to, to keep me company, a, a buddy. So my dog is called Buddy. Um, and yeah so she's she i've had her for five years about now i think next week five years and i just wanted something that that gave me a responsibility other than myself and and forced me to to step outside of my own head every now and then the fact that i have to get up in the mornings and let her out and take her out and and i'm very lucky to live by the sea so being able to have that dog that i i take down to the beach every day and we go and walk and get out in nature and it's it's was huge for my well-being and to be honest she saved my life more times than than anything you know there's been she used to come to training with me every day and from the first day i had her she came to training so she knows a track better than pretty much anyone and um you know there were times and i'll be i'll be honest about this when i was in a really bad place where had she not been in the back of the car i could have quite happily you know crashed on purpose and, and tried to hurt myself but because i had her with me i wouldn't do it um and things like that so huge being able to have that that companion um was was a massive thing for me and and the other ways i tried to do it is social is huge um you know i missed a lot of social when i was young because my whole life was about going to an olympics so i wasn't going out and having fun and it was always about what what will happen if i if i went out and, and was drinking then it'll affect my next day or it affects the race the week later so i can't go and do that and i can't stay up late and very military so now i'm, I'm really big about social because i didn't have a social group so social is really key which i appreciate for everyone now is really difficult um yes. but you know you still you can make you can make the effort to, to try and connect with people um, as best you can at this time and accept that it's not ideal but it's better than nothing um, so those are probably the two main things for me, getting out in nature, so getting out and about and, and being busy with that and then the social element. But yeah, in terms of mindset, number one is, is effort and then number two would be finding your purpose is, is something that so many people talk about. Why do you do what you do? As I said, I'm really lucky to have meaningful work, which is really important for people, meaningful occupations that you feel like you're actually making a difference to either your own world or or other people's as well and for me my purpose is i want to help people you know i want to help as many people as possible and um and that's what keeps me going um i get to do it in a coaching capacity so i get to help some of the best people in the world achieve some incredible things so i still get that elite performance side and then i work in well-being where obviously it's still the performance side i'm passionate about that within well-being but it's also just helping as many people as possible with with my story and with my work so just have a think about what your why is because i think that's so important in in any decision that you make moving forward it should be about your why and and the meaning towards that wonderful wonderful thank you thank you and you know i hope you don't mind me sharing this but you know something in there as well reminded me of a, a previous conversation we'd had where you you talked about finding um things that give you 
that stimulate you or that 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 feed you and uh, you talked about how you had um so many followers on a, an, on twitter and then you realized that these people weren't giving you anything back you weren't getting anything from that um can you talk a little bit to that yeah so it's probably just before christmas i'd say a week before christmas i deleted all of my social media so I had a, a reasonable following over Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, whatever, all of them. And I'd spend too much time on them. I would get anxious about some things I would see on my feed that would just make me anxious for whatever reasons. I'd have a lot of that, that social comparison, especially, you know, people tell me all the time, wow, Jack, you've really achieved and you've done well. And, I, you know, people would amazed that at 29 I've done what I've done and, and I'm really pleased but in terms of the things that we we put value on in terms of finances you know that miss wanting finances car materialistic things don't go to track and field if you want to make money right if that's your driver you don't do track and field I don't have any money to be a, I didn't make really make any money out of track and field so then I get frustrated that on social media that's what's valued not the nice things in the world helping other people and this positive light so then I get I used to get frustrated because I'd see people who hadn't done some of the things that I'd put on maybe on a par with myself and they've got x y and z and I can understand that and I it would just frustrate me and, and upset me um and then the other side that everyone's fake um everyone's just putting up filtered photoshopped only the positive things you know, we have a responsibility. If you are going to be on social media and we are passionate about well-being, we are passionate about mental health, we have a responsibility to filter what we put on there, not in terms of filters for your pictures, but in terms of put up real stuff, yeah, real yeah. things. Because we're all, you know, particularly our younger people, we are comparing ourselves to things that aren't even real, that those people haven't even got or, or have done. I know people that stand in front of cars and houses they don't own for Instagram and it's just absurd. So I made the decision that I wasn't prepared to compare myself all the time and I wasn't prepared to be tied to social media. So I got rid of them all. I only have the business ones. So I got business ones, but I have about three followers. So it's very different compared to when you have thousands <laughs> and thousands and you're just scrolling all the time. Um, and it's made such a difference to particularly my anxiety, my overall well-being. You know, on average, we spend, as in, in the whole world, on average, we spend two and a half hours a day on social media. You know, what can, I, I'm not saying you have to use that time to, to go and be, you know, be your best self and do this and do this. Just go and do something a bit better than that. Something that has meaning, right? That isn't yeah. just scrolling through. I used to, I, I was almost on routine where I'd just pick up my phone and press Instagram and I'd be like, I only pressed this 30 seconds ago. Why have I done it again? Nothing's new, nothing's changed. But yeah, it's um, it's amazing. And actually in terms of social, um, kind of that social connection, at one point it was, I think I'm going to miss out on things. I'll miss out on people. Actually it's forced, it, it makes your circle very small. You realize who's important and who cares. But it also forces me to ring people, message people, actually ask them what's happening rather than just seeing their story and going, oh, well, I know what's happening in their life. And you end up not asking them because you feel like you're already informed. Um, so it's really boosted that that social connection. But yeah, social media is is a really dangerous thing. It's amazing. I've had so many positive interactions through it, but the negatives outweighed it for me. So I, I made the decision to, to move away from that, which I think is quite a brave decision because you know, everyone's on it and we, we, we get that fear of, of, you know, missing out. 
because we're not on it because everyone else is and as human beings we like to do the popular thing but actually it's, it's been one of the best things I've done and, and has really helped my, my mental health in, in particular. It's really not surprising that it's one of the best things you've done and I think more and more you're seeing people aren't we that um, are having they're called social media detoxes where they they get rid of it all for like one or two months and I think you know I've certainly reduced my activity not perhaps as much as I should do but there are clear clear benefits of it um, I'm going to move us on a little bit now um, and I the next part is is about looking back on your experiences um, and thinking about what advice or guidance you'd give to yourself, particularly some of your most darkest times. Um, what would that be? Oh, wow! Yeah, big question. Um, <laughs> and as I ramble, this could this could go anywhere. Um, as I like to ramble, ramble uh, away. Yeah. So for me, I think there always has to be an acceptance piece accepting not only the as we talked about earlier that feeling the feelings and emotions that might come up but accepting the situations that you're in is really powerful because that allows you to then be proactive and positive and forward about moving through it whereas i think if you you kind of just sit there and go and won't accept that position you're in either because you don't want to accept it or because you want to sit in it and just you know veg out in it then you just don't make any progress. You don't move forward. So an acceptance, acceptance of where you are and what's happening is really important. I think giving yourself permission to feel any any kind of way that you need to feel is really important. And I talk about this in terms of helping other people a lot. So being consistent is is really key. Consistent in your your routines and your behaviours so that you can then create more positive habits and, and move forward through it. Um, I think I think then the vulnerability and being open with the people around you and I know that's hard that's nothing that's not an easy one to say yeah just go and do it but I think being as vulnerable as you can and, and, and as open with your communication as you can about how you're feeling so that you can get support is really really important because we all need someone to help us we all need a little team. We need a little army that, that helps us through, but people don't read minds. So unless you're communicating it, people aren't gonna know how to help you. And sometimes they get it wrong. So I'm a fixer, right? So if I see a problem, I want to fix it. And that's got me in trouble a few times with trying to help friends and, and people because people don't need fixing straight away all the time. Some people aren't in a position to be fixed and I'll just go straight in, fix you, fix you, fix you. But if the communication between both of us was better, I'd understand that they just need, you know, some time to sit with them or whatever to then move through it to the position that they're in to then fix it, which is a really hard thing to do if you're supporting someone or even with yourself when you're just, well, I want to fix myself. I want to move through this. And I know it's said about not staying in and accepting the position you're in, but sometimes some people have to be there for a little bit before they move on. But yeah, so fixing is a big thing. Yeah, there's... It's such a, it's so individual, isn't it? And this is the, this is the issue with mental health, right? Is it's so individual. Something that might help me or a way that I want to be helped won't work for you, won't work for others. And that's where well-being in the workplace is interesting as well, because that's all individual. If I say, here's a gym membership, not everyone goes, brilliant, thank you for my gym membership. Yeah. So we can't expect that with the treatment of mental health either or, or how people want to be communicated with. So. 
I think it's it's a the main thing. I, I to finish this bit off, I would say try and increase your self awareness as best you can, so that then you can seek help from others as well. But until you know yourself, you can't really do that. Okay, great. Thank you, and and lots of incredible advice in there as usual. And just to kind of take us to the end of the podcast now um a little section that i like to call guests favorite and it's about you know you sharing a book song tv show a quote a memory related to mental health that really inspires you or fills you with comfort or has helped you on your journey and and why that why that is um so in terms of books there were Three. So the first one, I, there's always more. I apologise, James. I'm always <laughs> more. Um, it's dangerous interviewing me because you never know how much you, I'm going to talk for. And it, well, it tends to be a lot. But yeah. So the first one would be Unbroken. Uh, my psychiatrist, and it made it was made into a film shortly after. Um, and my psychiatrist told me about it because it was about resilience. And he told me about it because it's about an Olympic athlete who then was captured, was in the war, captured by the Japanese and, and, you know, survived at sea for a ridiculous amount of time and then in a prisoner war camp and it just showed his resilience. So that was really powerful for me at the time. And um, there was something that, that, a quote from it that I took, which can be, I used it in a dangerous way. It was, if I can take it, I can make it, was his quote. Now, that's really positive if you use it in the right way, but I used to use it in a negative way of, I can destroy myself. And if I can destroy myself and survive it, we're cool. do you know what I mean? I didn't yeah, use yeah. it in a way of well done as in a positive of, you know, wow, you've you've overcome all of this. You've, you've been on this journey and, and you've made it well done. And, and look how strong you are. I'd use it in a way of how can I destroy myself more to test how much I can take. Um, so I didn't use it in a positive way, but people can. The other two were Robert Enker, um, A Life Too Short, about the German, obviously mine, mine come to, to sport because that's what I relate to. But if you ever wanted to understand my mental health and then possibly some others, read the Robert Enker story, a uh, German goalkeeper who committed suicide. Um, but the things he, were, he was feeling, it's the only, I've never cried at a film. I've never cried at a book. I've never cried at anything like that. Not because of my masculinity, my toxic mas masculinity, but because I don't know, I just can't relate a lot of the time to films and things. But this one, first time I tried to read it, it was too early in my journey, which I've never had anything like that before. I read a chapter and, and couldn't read anymore. I picked it up, I think a year or so later, I read it within a day and I cried um, reading it because it was, it was like reading my own book. Um, but that was really powerful. Obviously, it's a very sad story, but very powerful. And then the last one was Brené Brown and all of her books on, on vulnerability because the way she she's very academic, but the way that she can articulate all of these these really interesting studies and clever studies, um, but she does it in such a normal way um, is, is incredible. So those would be my three. I know you asked for one, but here we go. They're, those are my <laughs> three that particularly helped me. <laughs> well that's brilliant and hopefully people who are listening have got plenty and more than their money's worth from those three so thank you so much and just to tie up the show thank you so much for you as always for your honesty and your kindness with your experience it's been wonderful talking to you oh, thank you for having me thank you
Thank you for listening to this episode of Mental Health. I hope you enjoyed the conversation I had with Jack about his mental health journey. Check out Artlywell, Jack's consultancy, a first-rate advisory service where well-being and performance come together to transform the culture and performance of your business. Links in description. Please give at Mental Health Podcast a follow on Instagram. Next week's episode is with Matthew Shaw, BBC News editor, writer and mental health advocate, who was recently voted one of the top seven men in the world breaking the mould in men's mental health. Don't forget, if you want to be part of the show, send me a short message using the link in the description to be included in a future episode. My name is James Sava. This has been Mental Health Podcast. And remember, always be yourself and always be kind. Cheers.